0: Hello, crime connoisseurs! Thanks for joining me for another Altitude Crime episode. I'm Amelia Allen, and we are discussing Colorado true crime stories. A huge thank you to any of you that have already been listening to the podcast. I just love knowing that you're coming back for more. If you're new to the podcast, you've got three other episodes to binge when you're done here, so enjoy. So, while you have it up on your screen, because I know you do. Go ahead and follow or subscribe to Altitude Crime on whatever podcast platform you listen on. Connect with me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. Please feel free to reach out with your thoughts on this episode and suggest a crime. I'd love to get ideas from you guys. And as always, you can visit the website altitudecrime.com for source materials and other cool stuff. I want to give a big shout out to my very, very, very dear friend Emma for her recommendation on this case. Or I should say cases. That's right, people. Today we are covering our first Colorado serial killer, self-proclaimed Hannibal Scott Lee Kimball. As a little fun fact about my friend, Emma, uh, she actually has a hermit crab named Scott. He got named after this specific serial killer when he kept killing off all his hermit crab friends. So who says you can't have a sense of humor about true crime? But in all reality, Emma gave me a crime with a lot to unpack. So much to unpack that this is a two-parter episode. So buckle in. Because in addition to the murder spree portion of this story, there's an attempted prison break and a litany of possible connections to other victims. So let's dive in. There seems to be very little information on Scott Kimball's early life. There is a book by Ed Coet called SLK Serial Killer if you want to read more about Kimball. I had fully intended to read this book and give you some more details about Kimball and these cases, but the book seems to be out of stock in most places. I will include a link to the Amazon listing of the book in case you want to save it for purchase later. We do know that Kimball was born in Boulder, Colorado in 1966. Kimball would become a victim early on in life. His grandmother lived in Nederland, Colorado, about one hour northwest of Denver. She lived near a 41-year-old man named Theodore Payton. He soon started spending time with Kimball and his brother. At first, the time spent together was innocent. But soon, Peyton would claim that the brothers fought too much and that he needed to spend time with them separately. According to Sarah Burnett's reporting for the Denver Post, Kimball began being sexually abused by Peyton when he was 10 years old. The abuse would continue for seven years. After a failed suicide attempt by Kimball in 1989, the details of the abuse surfaced and his mother went to detectives for help. Peyton was convicted on six counts of sexual assault in 1991 and was sentenced to seven years in prison. Interestingly enough, the Colorado Sex Offender Registry did not come into effect until later in 1991, so when Peyton was released from prison, he did not have to report his residence to authorities. As an adult, Kimball would have an insatiable need to live the good life. Because of this, He had a knack for check fraud and was eventually put in jail due to his fraudulent activities. He had stolen over $50,000 from an optometrist that shared an office space with his mother. While in jail, he saddled up to the FBI, saying that he had information that could help bust up a lot of the meth rings in town. When that didn't work, he told the FBI a story they just had to believe. Kimball claimed that his cellmate, ecstasy dealer Steve Innes, and his girlfriend, Jennifer Markham, were hatching a murder-for-hire plot. The scheme was that Jennifer, who was living in Denver, would murder two potential witnesses in Stephen's upcoming drug case. The FBI saw this as a viable story and released Scott Kimball from jail in exchange for FBI informant status, on December 18, 2002, this decision would set into motion a modern tragedy that would end four people's lives. Leanne Emery lived in Centennial, Colorado, just 20 minutes south of the heart of Denver. According to her father, Howard, Leanne was a natural leader from a young age. She was a diligent and smart child earning all A's in school and graduating high school a year early. Leanne was starting a successful life and entered college to study physical therapy, but she was forced to quit college due to her mother's severe medical issues, including a recent brain aneurysm. Leanne took on the role of the woman of the house. She was always the person to help an outsider or anyone down on their luck. Leanne eventually got married, but it turned out to be an abusive relationship. She divorced her husband and soon started to date Steve Hawley, who would end up serving time while they were dating. Leanne would visit Steve in prison often. They were in love, and they were hatching a plan to get Steve out of jail. They would plan to meet in Mexico and live out their lives together. This plan included giving Leanne's phone number to a man she knew only as Hannibal. Hannibal, would escort her to Mexico, as well as break Steve out of jail. Leanne did not tell her dad about the escape plan for very obvious reasons. She instead told him she was going to go caving with some friends in Mexico. But when Leanne's dad stopped hearing from her, he attempted to place a missing persons report. There wasn't much authorities could do since Leanne was over 18. Instead, Howard turned to his bank accounts to create a paper trail for Leanne. It turned out Leanne had been racking up his credit cards and bouncing checks throughout the West Coast. He knew this was not like her and that something bigger had to be at play. Howard eventually came across emails Leanne had sent to her cousin. As reported in the Dateline episode about this case titled Deal with the Devil, they read, quote, I'm currently having to trust someone I don't know very well, but I have to do it to get what I want and need. My orders come from Hannibal for the moment, and he's a dangerous person to mess with. If Hannibal knew I was talking to you, he'd have me killed in a second, Unquote. Howard immediately went to Steve, Leanne's incarcerated boyfriend, to learn more about this Hannibal, Steve had not heard from Leanne either. Steve told Howard that Leanne was in great danger and that he needed to call the FBI right away. Howard's call to the FBI was dismissed as a tall tale, and the lead was not investigated. It was easy to tell it was Leanne's car when it was found abandoned in Moab in Utah on January 30, 2003. The girl who loved Dalmatians had gotten a vanity plate reading, Dalgal. Jennifer Markham was a happy soul that loved animals and the outdoors. She was all smiles and jokes with those around her. Jennifer was originally from Springfield, Illinois. She had dropped out of high school and married a military man. This is what brought her to Colorado. This union eventually ended in divorce. After Jennifer's divorce, she ended up in Denver, where she had a son fathered by a different man. She deeply loved her son and took joy in reading to him daily. Jennifer would do anything for her son, whom she affectionately called her little man. Jennifer was known to put other people's needs before her own. That meant when she fell on hard times after the end of the relationship with her son's father in 1999, she did everything anything to support her son. She became a dancer at Denver Strip Club Shotgun Willies to make ends meet. Jennifer would meet another man that she would fall in love with named Stephen Ennis. Stephen dealt ecstasy for a living, but neither wanted to stay in this shady lifestyle. Their goal was to make enough money to move to Washington State and open a coffee shop and live a straight life. While Stephen traveled between Denver and New York to deal ecstasy, Jennifer continued to dance. But their plan wouldn't last long. Stephen was busted by the DEA. In October 2002, he pled guilty and received a jail sentence of 10 years. The DEA estimated that Stephen had sold around 350,000 pills and had made about $500,000 in profit. This created another shift in Jennifer's life. While her son was living with his father, Jennifer moved her profession from dancing to prostitution to pay the bills. As we all know, the profession is rough. She called her mom at one point and said she'd been beaten during an encounter as a prostitute. Jennifer moved from different friends' houses anywhere to get a roof over her head. This is how she started living in Lakewood, Colorado with Scott Kimball. He had recently been released from prison. He had met her boyfriend, Stephen, in jail and had promised he would take care of Jennifer. He also promised to get her on her feet and move to Washington to start their coffee shop business. Obviously, this was quite a different story than Kimball had told the FBI. Little did Jennifer and Stephen know Kimball had thrown them under the bus in order to get released. On February 17, 2003, Jennifer made a trip to see Stephen in jail. During this visit, guards had to escort her out as the two got into a heated altercation. Kimball said he saw Jennifer for the last time that day. He said she was headed to the airport. Jennifer's calls from her parents would go unanswered through April. When they tried to contact her in May, her phone said it was no longer in service. This is when they really began to worry. In Patricia Calhoun's reporting for Westward, Jennifer's father said that, quote, she changed her phone before when she didn't want to talk to somebody, but she'd call you eventually, unquote. Her parents checked the local prisons to see if she'd been locked up. She hadn't. But when her parents called the police, they did not find this very concerning, as it can be typical in the type of lifestyle Jennifer had become involved in. Jennifer was 26 the last time she was seen. Her disappearance took place just weeks after Leanne Emery's. The FBI would confirm that Jennifer was a missing person in 2004. It was also in 2004 that her parents found out that her car had been found at Denver International Airport the year prior in 2003. From what I have been able to find the FBI were never able to give a very good reason as to why it was a year before her parents were informed of this. There were no records that Jennifer ever stepped foot on a plane. Forensic testing was done on the car, but anything found was not released to the public. Word of Jennifer's disappearance dissolved quickly. People around Shotgun Willies didn't want to talk about it. Jennifer's parents, Bob and Mary, saw to it that her story did not die. They worked hard to find out where their daughter was. Her father, Bob, eventually got in touch with families of homicide victims and missing persons. This nonprofit is Colorado-based and works to support families and friends of victims of unsolved murders and disappearances. It was created by Howard Morton, whose oldest child went missing in 1975. And keep listening in the future because I am planning on doing an episode on that case. This group helped Bob put up a billboard over Shotgun Willie's, advertising a $20,000 reward with the words, Jennifer, where are you? In Luke Turf's reporting for Westward, Howard Morton said of the case, quote, I don't care if Jennifer was involved in drugs, and I know she was. Nobody deserves to be murdered. There's guilt in all of us that have lost a child. Casey McLeod was an only child, but that in no way made her a brat. Her parents reflected on what an easygoing and well behaved child she was. Casey put other people first and was known to break into song and dance to put a smile on someone else's face. Her parents, Lori and Rob, divorced when Casey was young. After this, she started to engage in some teenage rebellion against her parents. She got into a rough crowd in high school and started to do meth and run away. Lori moved Casey to her aunt's home in Arizona to give her some space and get her away from the bad circle she was running with in Colorado. After a short time of living in Arizona, 19-year-old Casey moved back to Colorado to live with her mom. She had straightened out. She was clean and trying to create a stable life for herself. She got a job at a local subway to start making some money. At the time, her mother Lori had started dating a new man. According to Dateline, Lori said she met a man while playing cards at a casino in Blackhawk, Colorado, located about an hour outside of Denver. His name was Scott Kimball. When he asked for her number, Lori jokingly said, quote, you aren't a felon or anything, unquote. Scott told her not to worry because he worked for the FBI. He was as safe as he could seem and a complete gentleman. So he, Lori, and Casey started to settle into family life together. Then turmoil struck the McLeod home. Kimball found a vial of white crystals in Casey's room. Casey swore it was not hers. Lori was really afraid that Casey was using again and wanted to take her to the police. Casey refused and took off out of the house on her bike. Casey had run away before, so this reaction wasn't a surprise to Lori. After a brief search, Kimball found Casey and her boyfriend. Kimball offered to pay for a motel room for Casey to stay at while she sorted out her feelings. Casey accepted the offer. A couple of days went by, and Casey called her mom to apologize and tell her she loved her. While Casey was staying at the motel, Kimball was giving her rides to and from her shifts at Subway. One day, Casey's boyfriend called Lori and said Casey hadn't come back to the hotel that evening. When Lori called Subway, Casey's manager said that she never showed up for her shift that day. Casey was reported missing in August 2003, six months after the last known sighting of Jennifer Markham and seven months after any word from Leanne Emery. Her last known whereabouts were at a Thornton, Colorado hotel on the outskirts of Denver. Casey was expecting Kimball to pick her up to go to her shift at Subway. Kimball said he went hunting that day instead of taking Casey to work like he was supposed to. Lori could have never expected the terrible kind of hunting Kimball was really doing. The police couldn't do much with the missing person report since, again, Casey was over 18. Kimball started looking for Casey in the streets and said he would get the FBI involved in her disappearance. Seeing Kimball as her only security and support system, Lori married him later in 2003 in Las Vegas. Kimball and Lori soon went on their honeymoon, a camping trip to a nearby national forest. Kimball said there were signs of Casey around the house when they returned. A necklace of Casey's was left on a doorknob that had not been there previously. Kimball also talked to a neighbor who saw Casey and her boyfriend in the apartment while they were away. Lori had some hope that her daughter was okay. The next blow to Casey's parents would come at Christmas 2003, when Casey did not go to her dad Rob's house for the holidays as she normally would. A second Christmas, Christmas 2004, would come and go without any sign of Casey as well. In 2004, with no sign of her daughter, Lori and Kimball moved to the outskirts of Denver to start a beef farm, This is when Lori would meet Kimball's Uncle Terry. Once they moved onto the ranch, tragedy struck the couple again. In 2004, Kimball's 10-year-old son, Justin, was severely injured when a steel grate fell on him. It would take months of rehabilitation for the child to heal. Uncle Terry arrived at the ranch in 2004 to help care for the child and help with other duties around the ranch. He was fresh out of a divorce, and the move seemed like a good solution for everyone. Lori was really uncomfortable having Terry around. She just thought he was really strange. So for her, it was somewhat of a relief when he left the ranch in mid-2004. When asked, Kimball said his uncle had won the Ohio lottery and moved to Mexico with a stripper named Ginger. And I'm gonna put it out there, if you're going to make up a story maybe come up with not the most generic stripper name in the world, Ginger. Really? You all are no fools. So I am sure you have caught on by now that in all of these cases, Scott Kimball was the reason these people were missing. The investigation into Scott Kimball's dealings was deemed Operation Snowball by authorities, because the more they looked into him, the bigger and more complicated the investigation got. So let's try to unravel this very complicated web. Since Kimball's victims went missing in such a short time frame, from January 2003 to mid-2004, suspicion about him was coming to a head from a lot of different angles. The first point of suspicion would land in the lap of Detective Gary Thatcher. Gary was assigned to check fraud and other similar white-collar crimes and worked in Lafayette about 30 minutes away from Denver. He started to investigate a business bank account that inexplicably had $80,000 missing from it. He noticed that all of the checks used for the withdrawals were written to the same beef company belonging to a Scott Kimball. When he looked up the bank's video surveillance, sure enough, it was Kimball cashing all of those checks. Looking into Kimball's background, Gary could see that he had a history of check fraud charges and had even served time for the same type of offense. Gary's first step was to talk to Kimball. When he arrived at his residence, only his wife, Lori, was home. But Lori was eager to talk to investigators. Kimball had continued to get nasty with Lori, and it sounds like the relationship had gotten pretty verbally abusive. It had pushed Lori away, and the relationship was disintegrating. During the conversation, Lori talked about Casey's disappearance. She couldn't help thinking that Kimball knew something about where Casey was. A piece of information that Casey's dad would not learn until now was that after Casey disappeared, Kimball took off for about a week and Lori had no clue where he was at. Lori also mentioned to Gary that Kimball worked for the FBI. He immediately knew there was no way that someone with this kind of rap sheet was an agent for the FBI. His alarm bells started to go off like crazy. In the meantime, Jennifer Markham's dad, Bob, had refused to give up on the search for his daughter. The FBI had told him the case was going cold and they were running out of leads, As of 2006, the FBI had investigated 199 leads in Jennifer's disappearance. There was no chance at this point of building a murder case without a suspect or Jennifer's body. After Bob's insistence, the FBI arranged a meeting with an informant they called Joe Snitch. Joe was really familiar with Jennifer and the people around her. The FBI thought this would give Jennifer's parents some peace of mind, but it did quite the opposite. When Bob and Mary met with Joe Snitch, he gave them information that no parent wants to hear. He told them that he knew Jennifer was dead. He told him he knew how she died, but of course wasn't involved. He claimed that Jennifer had been killed by a drug dealer, and he only knew that because he'd seen a picture of her bound and gagged. He even offered her parents to go and find her body with them. Obviously, Jennifer's parents called the FBI immediately because how could Joe Snitch know all these things if he wasn't the one who did something to Jennifer? They were told by the FBI that Joe was just lying and it wasn't any kind of lead. But Jennifer's parents knew better. After the meeting was over, Bob managed to get the license plate of the car Joe Snitch was driving. After having a police officer friend run the plate, he knew his real name. The man they had met with was Scott Kimball. Bob kept pushing. He did an interview with Westward in which he mentioned that the last person to see Jennifer was Scott Kimball. Little did he know, this article would connect him with another dad looking for answers. Casey's dad, Rob, had not given up hope of finding his little girl. Then one day, while reading Westward, a familiar story jumped out at him another missing young lady, another dad in pain looking for her, and the same person to see her last, Scott Kimball. Rob would reach out to Bob and they would start trying to find answers together and they wanted to make Scott Kimball pay. They went to the Denver FBI field office with all of the information they knew. At this point, both of their daughters had been missing for three years. In November 2006, FBI Special Agent John Grusing would have this bear of a case put in his lap. Little did he know, it would take most of his career to investigate it. The fathers in the FBI warned Casey's mom, Lori, immediately. They asked about anyone else that may have been around the family and then just kind of disappeared. This is when it dawned on Lori that Uncle Terry's lottery win might have been nefarious. Authorities were able to confirm that the Ohio Lottery had never paid out to Terry Kimball, meaning he definitely never won the lottery. While the parents of the missing girls were starting to team up and share information, investigators were going down the rabbit hole that was Kimball's life. Investigators from Louisville, Colorado, reached out to Detective Gary Thatcher. They were also investigating Kimball but not for check fraud and not for missing women. They were trying to pin him for the attempted murder of his 10-year-old son, Justin, for the supposed accident that happened on the ranch in 2004. Justin had told hospital staff that day that his father had pushed him out of the moving car while they were on the way to the ER. Authorities did not buy at all that either incident was an accident. Upon looking farther into Kimball, it was found that he was checking in on existing life insurance policies for the family on that particular day. If Justin would have died in that accident or when he got pushed out of the car, Kimball would have received a payout of $50,000. But police still had very little evidence to arrest him on the charge, but they never stopped trying to put together the pieces. From what I am aware, they have not been able to firm up this evidence and Kimball has never been charged with the attempt. Detective Gary Thatcher and Caterina Booth, the chief deputy district attorney for Boulder County, had Kimball in their crosshairs. Katarina wanted to nail him for the check fraud. Since Kimball was a habitual criminal, it meant he could serve up to 48 years for the check fraud charge alone. This would give investigators more than enough time to build the cases for what looked like could be multiple murder charges. Authorities turned up the heat, and Kimball went on the run. He tried to play it cool with his wife, Lori, who he contacted throughout his movements. He told her he was in Alaska. Police knew this wasn't true, as his cell phone pinged off a tower in Palm Springs, California. In 2006, according to The Desert Sun, A four hour televised car chase would ensue, including Kimball driving through the crops and fields of the Coachella Valley. The chase ended when Kimball ran out of gas. The following standoff ended peacefully and with Kimball in cuffs. Kimball was then jailed for check fraud with a charge of 48 years, as well as a 70 month federal gun charge. During Kimball's run from law enforcement, Lori kept all of his belongings at her house. Little did she know, two items there would be pivotal in finding Leanne and Casey. One was a receipt from a grocery store in Walden, Colorado. Walden is about three hours northwest of Denver and an hour east of Route National Forest. Route extends from this area of Colorado up to central Wyoming. The other important item was Kimball's computer. When investigators started to explore the information inside of it, they would find over 300 pictures of women. And you would consider these pictures snuff. They showed women in different levels of torture and even possibly being murdered. But one photo on the computer really stood out because it was so innocent. It was a picture of a young woman with dyed black hair. Investigators were unsure who she was, but knew they needed to find out. FBI agent John Grusing was able to connect the picture of the girl with the black hair to a missing woman named Leanne Emery. The timestamp on the picture meant it was taken within days of Leanne's final contact with anyone. Howard, Leanne's father, would be notified by the FBI. He would be the final parent to become a part of this horrible circle. Outside of knowing Kimball was connected to Leanne, the FBI didn't have a lot to go on. Then all of a sudden one day, Kimball asked, what would happen if a girl he was connected to went missing on federal land? Would he be moved to a federal prison? This was appealing as life is thought to be a little easier in a federal penitentiary versus state prison. Kimball also mentioned spending time in Route National Forest. This made investigators remember the receipt that Lori had kept. The one from the grocery store in Walden, Colorado, just an hour away from Route. They looked back at it. It was dated August 24, 2003, one day after Casey McLeod was last heard from. Now, if the bureaucracy of some of the pieces of this case didn't already have you screaming, here's the kicker. When FBI Special Agent Grusing gets this information about Kimball and possibly Casey also being in Route National Forest, he calls the park to see if they can get a map so they can start a search of the area. The office there tells him it's $8 for a map, and Grusing is floored because he knows it's a huge amount of paperwork and time to get the funds to buy this $8 map, but the park won't budge. It seemed like another roadblock in this case. So instead of going through all the red tape, Grusing called back a few days later and asked if any bodies had been recovered in the part. And one had. In 2007, just the winter prior, remains were found in Route National Forest and had been sent to the local sheriff's office. Agent Grusing sent them to be tested and they were confirmed to be the remains of Casey McLeod. And while you could be frustrated that this lead wasn't followed sooner, the timing actually was just right. Had the lead about route come up any sooner, the body may have not been found yet, and the lead would have most likely been eliminated, and Casey could have never been found. When Kimball was questioned, he, of course, took no responsibility for his actions. His initial story was that all the missing persons were hiding out, So let me ask you, have you ever known one person who was hiding out? Have you ever known four people that were hiding out? Have you ever known four people who were hiding out and all had seen you last? Yeah. His next version of the story was that while he was present and involved in the deaths, he didn't actually fire the kill shots and didn't actually kill each victim. He also expanded his story in Casey's case and said he didn't mean for her to die. He claimed he had given her alcohol, meth, and Oxycontin, and she overdosed, and in a panic, he disposed of her body. Strangely enough, the murder of his Uncle Terry would actually be the first one that he would really openly admit to, but not those of the three young ladies. Kimball initially confessed to all four deaths in a 147-page letter to his family that was confiscated while he was in prison. Then on May 15th, 2008, Kimball officially confessed to the murders of Leanne Emery, age 24, Jennifer Markham, age 26, Casey McLeod, who was 19, and his 60-year-old uncle, Terry Kimball. In 2009, he pled guilty to two charges of second-degree murder. This, in exchange, took the death penalty off the table but he was required to show authorities the locations of his victim's remains. Kimball did lead authorities to the locations of both Leanne and Terry. Leanne had been taken to the Book Cliffs area of southeastern Utah, about seven hours west of Denver. Kimball had been known to spend time in this area in the past. The first trip out to locate Leanne and Jennifer's remains turned up nothing. A couple of days later, Kimball took authorities out to a dry creek bed close to the first day's search location, and they found nothing again. About a month later, they took another trip out with Kimball. And at one point as they're walking along, he was leading investigators in a certain way and then decided to turn. Something about his demeanor made investigators suspicious. So they decided to have some personnel continue on with him while the others searched the area he turned away from. Sure enough, in that location Kimball strayed away from, police found a hair clip with hair in it and bones nearby. This was the remains of Leanne Emery. Investigators also found a bullet near her body. Kimball gave authorities a description of Terry's clothing and a really detailed map as to where his body was. Investigators waited for the snow to thaw and went to search on Vail Pass, a mountain road located just outside of Vail, Colorado. They located Terry's body as well as a bullet nearby. The bullet matched the one found with Leanne. Kimball insisted that he was helping to find Jennifer. And his excuse is that he doesn't remember her exact location because he was only there once. Excavations have continued without Kimball's presence, but have still turned up nothing. So you may be thinking at this point, why is Scott Kimball called Hannibal? Well, as we know, he chose the name for Leanne to call him when they started to connect with each other. And no, there is no end to this story where he's eating people's brains while they're alive at the dinner table. No Chianti, no fava beans. But the name still fits. To say that Scott Kimball is smart and manipulative would be an understatement. It seems that he has a talent to pinpoint a person's weakness and prey upon it. He was able to keep one step ahead of police for quite a while, considering the short time frame he killed in. Scott Kimball killed four people in the course of a year and a half and in less than an hour distance away from each other. So we now have a few revelations about Kimball's killings. We know that it was Kimball who forced Leanne to bounce checks and spend thousands on her father's accounts while she was under his thumb and traveling the West Coast prior to her murder. And it was most likely Kimball who planted the drugs that were found in Casey's room, along with her necklace Lori found after they came back from their honeymoon. And why kill his Uncle Terry? The theory is twofold. First, Terry came to Colorado with a literal suitcase full of cash as a result of his recent divorce. So the first reason could be just pure greed. So that Kimball could have all that cash for himself. The second thought is that perhaps Terry caught on that the injuries to Kimball's son, Justin, that happened on the ranch, weren't an accident. Kimball may have killed him to keep him quiet. Kimball has often boasted about other murders, but authorities have yet to connect him to any additional crimes. It is believed by the FBI that he could have been responsible for anywhere from 15 to 21 deaths in total. The FBI has taken a much more skeptical approach to informants and in how they deal with him after the Scott Kimball incident. In Kimball's case, he was able to mix the right amount of BS with credible information and made it sound like his claims were legitimate. The FBI also underestimated him as they didn't see any violent tendencies in his past and really thought of him more as a white collar criminal. FBI Special Agent John Grusing has continued to work the Kimball case and plans to connect him to any other possible victims. He sees it as his mission to correct the injustices that were set in motion when Kimball was freed in 2002, even if it takes the rest of his career. Kimball is serving a 70-year sentence for all of his crimes. He will be eligible for parole in 2053 when he will be 87. Considering his 2017 attempted murder and escape from Sterling Correctional Facility, it's pretty unlikely he will be granted parole. Kimball will most likely die in prison. Kimball had declined to speak on the 2018 Dateline episode about this case. Bob Markham, Howard Emery, and Rob McLeod all spoke at Kimball's sentencing. According to the Dateline episode, Rob McLeod said, quote, "'Casey was my only child. "'I was there when she took her first breath. "'Scott Kimball was there when she took her last.'" Lori McLeod has a lot of guilt over bringing a man into her life that would become her daughter's killer. Her marriage to Scott Kimball has since been annulled. Perhaps the most gut-wrenching part of Lori and Casey's story came at a time that should have been a happy one. Once Casey's remains were found, Lori would recognize the area, It was the national forest that she and Kimball had camped at for their honeymoon. Lori later told Dateline that she had to forgive Kimball for what he had done. Quote, otherwise he keeps winning and Satan keeps winning. Unquote. Phew, are you guys still with me? I had no idea when I started researching this episode what a rabbit hole it would be. I know that was a boatload of information, so please don't hesitate to reach me on social media on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast, or Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime if you have any questions or got lost at any point along the way. Like I said earlier, this story is going to be a two-parter, but let's wrap up with some musings about this chunk of the case. Musing number one. Let's be honest, the FBI got some major egg on their face for this case, since the murders happened after they released Kimball. If the FBI hadn't released him, these four people, and maybe more, would still be alive. In addition, Kimball's status as an informant seems to have kept some of the leads, especially from the victim's parents, from really being investigated. I can say at least they acknowledged that the FBI informant system they were using wasn't working and did institute some reform. That doesn't bring anybody back, but at least they aren't acting like they did nothing wrong. And I have to give huge props to FBI Special Agent John Grusing, because he certainly is spending a lot of time to right the wrongs that happened in this case. Musing number two. So there has to be some way to reform the missing person's process or add to that or something. There is such a hard duality to cases like this. Of course, you don't want people to cry wolf and you'd want the police to spend their time wisely. But you hear of this so often when a family member or friend just knows something is wrong. They know this is out of character for the missing person and it just isn't taken seriously. Or it's not taken seriously because the person is over 18 and is an adult. I think missing person reports are also very undervalued when someone is put in the class of drugs and prostitution or they're homeless, something along those lines that makes our society look down on people like that. The reality is sometimes people just aren't seen as important. In Luke Turf's reporting for Westward, Jennifer's mom is quoted as saying, quote, Jennifer fell through the cracks. She wasn't important enough. She was a dancer. She was an escort. She wasn't important enough. And I don't think the FBI cared, period. It's all got to do with drugs and money, unquote. Musing number three. There is one beautiful piece to this story, and that is one of a father's love. To hear how the fathers of these victims banded together is just really incredible. It really shows you the true meaning of parental love, and I think that's about the only positive you can take out of this entire case. Musing number four. I'm going to put it out there and say that Lori is really, really lucky she wasn't killed by Kimball. She definitely brought up concerns to him about his behavior after Casey went missing, and he kind of waved it off, tried to make her think she was the crazy one. I really have to wonder if she ever got really forceful, if he would have felt that he needed to just eliminate the problem. I also kind of have to wonder if Kimball married her in that Quickie Vegas wedding to prevent her from testifying against him should authorities find any evidence of his wrongdoing. Musing number five. It is clear that Scott Kimball has an ego bigger than the state of Colorado. I have to wonder if him not correctly recalling Jennifer's location gives him some kind of power in that respect. Or, if the cases that they say are connected to him do get some more traction, I wonder if he's keeping that as a bargaining chip for him to use down the road with investigators. Okay, again, thanks for sticking with me through that very long and very complicated web of this case. That is all for today. But in the next episode, we're going to have some other big tales about Scott Kimball because there is just too much out there to end the story now. We know a personality like Kimball's wasn't going to lay low. Next episode, I'll be covering Kimball's attempted prison break and murder plot that took place in 2017. Additionally, Kimball is thought to have killed between 15 and 21 people. I will talk about the three cases that are currently publicly linked to him. And let me tell you, they are as nuts as the story I told you today. As of today, Jennifer Markham's remains have still not been located. If you have any information regarding Jennifer or anything regarding Scott Kimball, please contact the Federal Bureau of Investigation Denver Field Office at 303-629-7171. So, thanks again. Please make sure to follow or subscribe wherever you enjoy your podcasts and connect with me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast or on Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. Please comment with your thoughts on this episode. I know it's been a roller coaster ride. And feel free to suggest a crime like my good friend Emma did. And you can always visit the website altitudecrime.com for source materials and other super cool stuff. Let's be honest, we are such good friends now, why don't you leave a review and recommend the podcast to all your true crime loving peeps. Also, if you're needing something a little light after that story, hop on over to Amazon where you can purchase my collection of adolescent poetry. Just search for the title A Teenager's Diary by Amelia Allen. It's free to read if you have a Kindle Unlimited account, so have at it. Join me next Sunday for another episode of Altitude Crime and the second part of this story about Scott Kimball and his wake of destruction. I'm so excited to have had you here and I'll talk to you next Sunday. Episode 4, The Victims of the Colorado Hannibal Scott Kimball, Part 1, was written, produced, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music provided by Podbean.com.